This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Investec Asset Management. Value of investments can fall as well as rise and losses may be made. In South Africa, Investec Asset Management is an authorised financial services provider. Let's talk about the US-China trade war with a specific reference to the tech aspect of this trade war, which has been rumbling on for months and months and months now. With me is Sahil Matani, who's strategist at Investex Investment Institute. Just before we get into your analysis, because you have written a very in-depth piece, how serious is it? Because as I said in my introduction, it really is rumbling on. Thanks, Lindsay. Well, it looks pretty durable from where I stand. I mean, I still think we're headed for a multipolar world in a number of aspects. But even if you do get some sort of trade deal, it's going to involve a standing task force, perhaps based in Beijing and DC. And so that monitoring mechanism is going to be a source of friction throughout its life. So I think this is the beginning of the skirmish, not the end. As you mentioned, there are a number of dimensions on this US-China competition, which was preceded by 40 years of convergence, and it's now giving way to real rivalry. Uh, We have trade, of course. Um, Technology is an important part of that. And if you look back to the Cold War between the USSR and the US, it also involved an ideological and a security component. That's not been as prevalent in this case, but given how quickly this um, skirmish has evolved in the last year, Um, That's something investors will also have to be mindful of. Yes, indeed. Would you say that the tech war within the trade war is characterized by the Huawei situation, which I think behind the scenes probably infuriated the Chinese authorities? Yes, I think Huawei is is one part of it. Certainly in the UK, the big debate is about uh, the extent to which the UK should engage China with Huawei. Um, I think... It is uh, partly in the U.S. about Made in China 2025, which we haven't heard very much about, but is still continuing. But if you take a step back, the story here is that China has advanced technologically in the last decade. Um, If you look at uh, Chinese exports uh, sophistication, that's been going up. For example, China's share of high-tech exports in the global market is now 35%, up from 5% in 1995. So that's the context. You have an increasingly sophisticated technological power that's investing in R&D, and that is making um, the established power nervous. Um, I think if you, you know, in this short piece that we that we did, we we looked at the ways China would respond to uh, this U.S. technological containment policy. And I think our conclusion is that China will respond by doubling down. Um, It will respond by upgrading its R&D. Um, you know, in 2000, Chinese R&D over GDP was just under a percent. Yeah. Uh, next year, they expect it to be at two and a half percent. That's already surpassing the European level, um, which they did in 2014. I think China will also try to encourage a reverse brain drain. Um, so it makes it easy because the U.S. is actually curtailing knowledge transfer, uh, for example, by prosecuting U.S.-based Chinese scientists on spy charges. Yes. Um, and China, that makes it easy for China to kind of raise salaries and provide more opportunities. Um, we've seen some recent data that suggests that more grads are returning to China than before. It's actually around 85 percent. So it's very large. Um, and the third thing we think China will do is they'll pivot towards Europe. 
because Europe is, is weak and divided. And we've got the Belt and Road deals that they've signed with Italy and Greece. You know, France hasn't signed the Belt and Road agreement, but it signed a bunch of multi-billion dollar deals, which are quite similar to that. Um, and I think the Huawei issue is is exactly how it's it's manifesting itself in Europe, but not necessarily in the US or Australia or Japan, where it's a, it's a non-issue, really. One of the things about China to me is that they are very, very nimble. It's a huge economy, but they're very nimble and they make decisions very, very quickly indeed. It's not as if they don't need the United States because everyone needs the United States, apparently, as the world's largest economy. But China is saying, OK, well, we're going to do other things to ameliorate the problems that have arisen because of the trade war instigated by the US. That's exactly right. And I think people people underestimate the speed with which the Chinese act. I mean, we see this at the company level where you, you have a company like Pinduoduo, which uh, has got half a billion users in just over two years. Uh, you know, WeChat has a, uh, a new program called Jump Jump from a few years ago, from two years ago, rather. And they had a hundred million users in two weeks. Sorry, did you, can you say that again? Because that's that's, that's only just sunk in a hundred million users in two weeks. Yes, and, and I think we we all know that, that that China everything is is dealt with in large numbers. But I don't think we know quite the effect that's having on the technological ecosystem. Because when you have a hundred million users in two weeks or five hundred million users in two years, you can iterate very quickly. So in Pinduoduo's case, they managed to um, create something called group buying, which is a, is a system where people gather together and buy products in groups and as a result get discounts. And that's something they could do relatively quickly and pioneer that model because of the scale. Um, so I think people underestimate the impact of scale as a handmaiden to do. Think of it as indigenous innovation in China. So then why is the next paragraph in the piece that you kindly sent me yesterday entitled, Isn't China Vulnerable? It seems to me that they have gone from 0.9% R&D up to the current 2.5%. They will soon overtake the United States, which is currently at 2.8% of GDP. Where are the vulnerabilities as you see them? So I, I think semiconductors are the biggest vulnerability. I mean, analysts look at China and they say China is 10 years behind in designing high-end chips. Um, it's definitely investing heavily to remedy this. It's also stockpiling on a short-term basis. If the U.S. curtails semiconductor sales to China um, in, a, in a hard way, that will be problematic for China. But keep in mind that 40% of sales for U.S. semiconductor companies go to China. So they would be, uh, they would be hurting their own companies if they did that. So I think there's an incentive for the U.S. to keep um, sales going in some form. Uh, so our base case is that despite the recent escalation, tariffs are likely to be in targeted measures, um, giving China more time to build up its production base. It's not impossible to see China becoming a significant uh, power in semiconductor manufacturing and design. If you look at Samsung, uh, its rise shows that it's possible to achieve tech dominance relatively quickly. I think another source of vulnerability is uh, telecoms, where, as I mentioned earlier, the US, Australia and Japan and New Zealand have banned Huawei. Uh, but there's actually very little sign that uh, countries in Africa, emerging Asia and even in Europe um, are planning to do the same, uh, partly because Huawei is technologically uh, more advanced in some products than their uh, chief two competitors, but also because they're very cost effective.
So I think those are the, the two main vulnerabilities. Talking about vulnerabilities, the US isn't immune to them either, because, um, as you say, 57 companies in the S&P 500 get more than 10% of their sales from China. And of course, the one that everybody will know about and everybody will be familiar with, with and can relate to is Apple. Yeah, that's right. I think there's Apple, but you also have other companies that are at at what we would consider the technological frontier of the U.S. economy. You've got firms like Qualcomm and Texas Instruments and NVIDIA and Microsoft. Um, and actually, these are there are quite a lot of the quality growth names that have really outperformed um, over the last decade. You know, these include companies like Tiffany's and McDonald's, Starbucks and, and Nike. Um, I mean, these are companies that have made China an important part of their expansion strategy. So... Uh, to the extent that Chinese consumers and uh, Chinese laws start to move away from products that these companies are making, um, that will certainly impact uh, the U.S. and U.S. investors. But I think look, look beyond the company level and look at the impact the trade war is having on the Chinese reform agenda, because the trade war is actually giving a massive boost to reformers in China. And the difficult supply-side reforms that were moving a little bit slowly a few years ago are accelerating. Uh, you know, we look at SOE reform uh, for Chinese companies, and we've seen a mixture of mergers and acquisitions, bankruptcies, capacity closures, and improving corporate governance. Um, and that's boosted profitability uh, within these companies. Um, and on a, on, a, on a macro basis, if you look at you know, Chinese credit growth, which has been uh, far ahead of nominal uh, GDP growth in recent years, that, that number has come down uh, significantly. So that suggests that we're actually getting close to the point where credit growth in China is not contributing uh, significantly to imbalances in the economy. Um, and I don't think we're prepared for a, for a period in which the Chinese economy is, is, uh, is performing um, at, at speed, uh, without generating these imbalances. You make the point that you've already made, actually, in your next paragraph, where you say we are still headed for a multipolar world no matter what. Neil Ferguson being the economic historian that you quoted there, you say the US and China competition is broadening out from trade to technology and eventually to ideology and security. And to your last point, you more or less said which can be paraphrased, I suppose, by an old English saying, necessity is the mother of invention, and the Chinese are reinventing themselves via the reforms you spoke of. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Um, and I think you, sh you should expect to see that going forward. Now, you know, when I typically make this case to, to investors, uh, I, I, they come back with me, to, to me rather, with um, a number of problems that they see in the Chinese economy. You know, one of those problems is the huge stock of debt. And they wonder whether the tech war um, and the trade war will be a catalyst for uh, for making that a problematic aspect of investments in China. Um, and I look at that and I say, look, overall debt to GDP in China is 270 percent. And investors look at that and they have the Japan analogy from the 90s in their mind. Um, and we think this is misleading. Because you, much of the debt um, was actually used quite productively. If you think of China's high-speed rail system, which has a 30,000-kilometer network, um, a lifespan it will have, uh, which is measured in decades. Um, of course, there are ghost cities, and there's been a diminishing productivity of capital in recent years. But 
Unlike in advanced economies, where actually much of the recent debt build-out has been spent on tax cuts and social spending, um, which at best maintain the productive capacity of the economy and at worst are pure waste, um, in China, a hefty portion of it has been used on increasing productive capacity. So these are things like railroads, bridges, modernized housing, hospitals. All these will serve China for many years to come. Um, and then if I just compare the capital stock in China per capita um, to South Korea's or Japan's, um, it's, that figure is still less than half. So that suggests that China has actually not overdone its investment build-out. Um, and finally, one way I think of China's potential and productive capacity is just looking at how many people are still in rural areas. You know, yes. There are still 580 million people um, in the Chinese countryside. And if you look at the urbanization ratio in China, it's still under 60% versus you know, 80 to 90% in Europe and uh, developed East Asia. Um, so that suggests that China has still a lot of potential um, and it's able to realize that potential provided um, that the trade war isn't as big of a shock. Um, and we think that it can overcome those shocks at the moment. Yes. Well, let's hope so. I mean, they won't become an insular, self-sustaining economy like the United States of America because of their fantastic export qualities and export performances over the years. But certainly they will adjust their economy, as we both said earlier on in the interview, quite quickly compared to the uh, compared to the Western world, if I can put it that way. Actually, I disagree with you there, Lindsay. I think China has the potential to be a, a vast continental economy of the kind that the U.S. is. And if you look at the U.S. at the moment, partly because of their scale and partly because the dollar insulates them from foreign trade shocks, um, it is effectively a, a, you know, a vast economy which trades mostly amongst itself and with, with a low export to GDP figure. And we think that's, that's eventually where China is headed. I mean, obviously, it's had uh, an export-led growth model. Um, and now it's reaching a point where it is difficult to get the rest of the world to absorb those exports just because China's sheer scale uh, has made it has made it difficult for, for the rest of the world to absorb um, at scale those exports. And so as a result, uh, China uh, will have to develop a vast domestic economy. And we see actually that it is going in that direction mm. um, and the reforms are succeeding. Um, and you can see that in uh, SOE reforms. You can see that in uh Reforms within the financial system, for example, where the wealth management products and and other shadow banking uh, activity has been curbed in recent years. And so they're doing all the right things to get a vast domestic economy going. Sahil, that's fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for your time. That's Sahil Matani, who is strategist at Investex Investment Institute in London.